Sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll be (coughs) looking at the second part, Uh, Jesus Christ Heals His Church. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 9, verse 32, through to chapter 10, verse 8. Uh, Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen, amen. amen. Please be seated. To be always of good courage and to engage in battle with strength and a good hope, the struggling Christian must necessarily always have a steadfast comfort In this life, there must be something that is continually administered to him from heaven. It must be something that enables him in all strife and in all the sorrows of this world, which are manifold and occur relentlessly. Something to lift him up, to encourage, to refresh, and to comfort his heart, saying, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. There must be something that during his journey through this valley of Baca will always be a well of refreshment upon which his weary soul can rely, such as a staff, something that renders him patient, gives him a good hope, and causes him to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost. This quote comes from Theodorus Vandergroes' work, The Christian's Only Comfort in Life and Death, an exposition of the Heidelberg Catechism. Do you need comfort 
Do you need to be refreshed daily? Do you need, is it true for you that you need something continually administered to your soul from heaven? Yes, indeed. Christ has delivered us, brothers and sisters, from all sickness, from death, from all misery. To live is Christ. To live is to be in this victory. And to die is gain. We lose nothing at death. We gain more than we had when we die. And we'll see in today's text one wonderful example of Jesus Christ whom we can trust and how he administered from heaven then and how he still does now that which is needful for our souls. The knowledge of his living, reigning love over us, in us, all the time. Last week we saw the healing of Aeneas (coughs) at Lydda. This poor man had been paralyzed, bedridden for eight years. But Jesus healed him. And the knowledge of this work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the text says very clearly, of course, Peter was there, but Jesus Christ healed him. And the knowledge of Christ from heaven, the risen Christ from heaven, pouring out his spirit, raising this man up out of his bed, went through the town and led to revival in that region. And if you look at the map there, you can recall... I hope you'll see there, Lydda, uh, there near the edge of the plain of Sharon, we're told that the news spread through Lydda and all through Sharon. The gospel is spreading through the coastlands there of Israel. Now we know that the plain of Sharon is on the western coast, and you can see how close Lydda is to Joppa. It's about 10 or 12 miles northwest of Lydda. I've I've hiked that kind of distance with some of you in this room before. Peter could make that walk. Also note there Caesarea, north of Joppa, also on the coast. Uh, You'll see below a closer look there at Caesarea and Tarsus. As we recall that Saul had been sent from Jerusalem to Tarsus via Caesarea. So all these things, these geographic regions are overlapping. And this time frame is overlapping as well. This section is telling us about Peter and his ministry. Let's dive into the text. What do we know about Tabitha? The text tells us that at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. So as you've seen from the map there, Joppa is on the coast. Commentary says the city of Joppa was an old Canaanite and Philistine town. It was the port of entry for the timber that was imported from Lebanon, which was used in the construction of the first and the second temple. In the Hellenistic period, Greeks settled in that city. In 146 BC, Jonathan, the Hasmonean ruler, conquered Joppa and transformed it into a Jewish harbor. After Judea had become a Roman province in AD 6, Joppa seems to have been the capital of one of the regions of Judea. And the population seems to have been predominantly Jewish. So it appears as though this is a Jewish town and people who would have been exposed to the readings of Scripture and to synagogue life. Now Tabitha is a faithful and fruitful believer in Jesus Christ. She's one of those, probably formerly a Jew, Her name, as you'll see, is Hebrew, who has come to Christ. And the church there she's a part of values her. She's a disciple. She's a follower of Jesus Christ. And she, we're told, is overflowing with many good works, especially sacrificial deeds of service to those who are in need. It appears as though Tabitha, this tender woman, drinking of Christ... Her heart is overflowing with streams of living water. You want to be like her, don't you? We should want to be like her. Commentary says, She was eminent above many for works of charity. She showed her faith by her works, her good works, which she was 
full of, that is, in which she abounded. Her head was full of cares and contrivances, which way she should do good. Her hands were full of good employment. She made a business of doing good. She was never idle, having learned to maintain good works. Titus 3.8. To keep up a constant course and method of them, she was full of good works, as a tree that is full of fruit. Many are full of good works who are empty, excuse me, many are full of good words, but are empty and barren in good works. But Tabitha was a great doer, not a great talker. We do not talk great things, but we live them. <clears throat> Is that how you're known? People know of you as a great doer more than a great talker. Titus 3.8 says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. John 7.37-39 gives us the explanation of how this happens in her life or in your life in any Christian life. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We drink of Christ by believing in Christ. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Tabitha, Jesus being glorified in his resurrection, in his ascension, the Spirit being poured out, Tabitha was one of the recipients of this Spirit. She was overflowing in good works and deeds towards others. She had learned how to express her gratitude for such a great deliverance, it seems. What does Tabitha mean? It means female, gazelle. Dorcas means gazelle. So her name has to do with a deer. Isn't that precious? Commentary says her name was Tabitha, a Hebrew name, the Greek for which is Dorcas, both signifying a doe or hind or deer, a pleasant creature. So her name is quite fitting, it seems, for her demeanor and for how she was known amongst the saints. But you know, sometimes people die in the midst of doing good. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they, that's the disciples, when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. It's kind of a shocking thing. When someone dies, it seems as though it was somewhat unexpected. This fruitful disciple gets sick and dies. Tragedy strikes this Christian community. You can, I'm sure, imagine the thoughts, why, Lord? Why? Why not me? I'm not as fruitful as her. These moments will test our faith and we'll have silly questions that we come up with in the midst of those moments. But the Lord even hears our silly questions. How would we respond? How would we respond if one of us in our midst became sick and died? Would we be hopeful like these disciples? Because they are hopeful. They are exceedingly hopeful. They love her so much. They treat her dead body with such respect as was the Jewish way. They give personal care to her body. Washing her body and tenderly laying her there in an upper room. Hope is guiding their treatment of her body. The way we treat a dead body is an important expression of our belief in Christ's resurrected body and in our coming glorified bodies. No mention is made of them planning her burial. They probably were thinking about it, but we know what's foremost on their mind by the next verse. It appears as though Peter's near proximity gives them hope. 
Tabitha may not be dead for good. Her friends and those about her did not presently bury her as usual because they were in hopes, in commentary, they were in hopes Peter would come and raise her to life again. But they washed the dead body according to the custom which it is said was with warm water which if there were any life remaining in the body would recover it. So that this was done to show that she was really and truly dead. They tried all the usual methods to bring her to life and could not. She was dead, dead, dead. Her spirit had left her body. And children, do you understand that that's what death means? There's an invisible part of us that God has made that we cannot see that is, while we're alive, bound to these physical bodies that we can see. And death is the parting, the unnatural parting when He made Adam and breathed life into him. Had there been no sin, it would have never left him. That union between Adam and his soul was meant to be eternal. So that's what death is. Death, by definition, is the parting of the body and the soul. And this body cannot live without the soul within it. So children, this is what has happened to Tabitha. But the Jews are hopeful that maybe if Peter comes, he can do something, he can pray, and Jesus, who raised people from the dead, might put her spirit back in her body. That's what they're thinking. So they call for Peter to come quickly, the text says, and since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, Peter's there. Wait a minute. They sent two men to him imploring him not to delay in coming to them. It's a hopeful bunch. They know what death is, and they know that resurrection has happened. It occurred before. They've read, certainly they've read their Old Testament Bibles, and they've heard the New Testament stories. Elijah raises up the son of the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, and he stretched himself out on the child three times, and cried out to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, my God, I pray, listen, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. When we, when we see Peter pray in a moment, you have to think perhaps Peter was praying the same kind of prayer that he had read about in his Bible. We see Elisha with the double portion of the Spirit, raising up the Shunammite son in 2 Kings 4. Another example of someone who was dead, dead, dead. God brought their spirit back to them and raised them up. The New Testament, Jesus raises up the son of the widow of Nain in Luke 7. Then he came and touched the open coffin and those who carried him stood still and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak and he presented him to his mother. Jesus Christ will raise us from the dead. There are no permanent goodbyes for us as Christians. There are no permanent losses for us as Christians, except for the loss of our sin and our flesh, praise be to God. Jesus raised up Jairus' daughter the very next chapter in Luke chapter 8. He put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Who has the power to reunite the soul and the body, but one voice, the voice of God. Praise be to God. That He owns us, body and soul, both in life and death. And that He is the one who keeps us. Then what happened? Her spirit returned. You hear that? Her spirit returned. And she arose immediately and he commanded that she be given something to eat. Jesus loves our soul. Jesus loves our body. Jesus loves creation. We are not Gnostic. We are Christians. And then in John 11, we see Jesus raising up Lazarus. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. This man was already in the grave. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, 
loose him and let him go. It doesn't matter how long you're in the grave. doesn't matter how long you're dead. Jesus can put your soul and your body back together again. They were concerned because Lazarus was going to be stinky by then. These things are nothing for Jesus. So they implored Peter not to delay. The Jews have this belief that the soul stayed near the body for only a few days. And that maybe Elijah and Elisha couldn't have done their great deed if they had waited too long. And probably Peter couldn't do his great deed. That's probably what was in their mind. They better hurry before the Spirit gets too far and the the power of God isn't quite enough. We don't think that way. Commentary says when a body was kept, it was kept for three days because there was the belief that after three days the soul had departed. Of course, we have all read the accounts of individuals who have reported out-of-body experiences when they have near-death experiences. Are they telling the truth or not? Only God knows, but it certainly fits with the biblical description of what happens when we die. Our souls come out of our bodies and they go somewhere else. And that's a journey that the soul travels somewhere else that God takes it to. That's what happened to Old Testament saints. That's what happens to saints in the current administration of God's kingdom as well. But remember, to live as Christ, to die is gain. So what does Peter do? Well, he goes. He doesn't delay. He goes. He arose and he went with them. He goes to be with the weeping widows. The text says, when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. So the text doesn't tell us that they told Peter why they wanted him to come so fast. It seems reasonable that they would have told him why they wanted him to come without delay. Now Peter has faith that the Lord may raise Tabitha from the dead. And he knows that if the Lord doesn't raise Tabitha from the dead, he can be a comfort for them. He can disciple them through this loss. Either way, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Not just for the person who dies, but for all around. So he goes with the men. I want us to note his willingness to be interrupted and imposed upon. He was busy with ministry, we know, from the prior scripture. He was probably discipling those. He was probably still evangelizing. He was probably still experiencing the, all those beautiful outcomes of the healing of the gentleman there in Lydda. But he submits to the Lord's guiding providence. He gets up and he goes. It's worth noting, it's a point here in the text worth noting for all Christians Commentary says, let not faithful ministers grudge to be at every, everybody's back and call as far as they have the ability. Even the great Apostle Paul made himself the servant of all, we're told in 1 Corinthians 9.19. Peter found the corpse laid in the upper chamber and attended by widows, probably such as were in the communion of the church, probably poor widows. So Peter is following the Lord's providence, going where the Lord is working. And he arrives to the upper room where Tabitha's Tabitha's washed body is waiting. So imagine this scene. He enters there, and he probably hears the weeping widows before he even gets into the room. And they're grieving the loss of their dear sister. They love her. And we know from this that Tabitha spent at least some of her time making tunics and garments. It sounds like they were quality tunics and garments that she had made. Either way, they were expressions of her love for Christ, worthy of being displayed as examples of her good works and her charitable deeds there next to her dead body. An example of respecting and honoring Christians who've served Christ with their lives in integrity and in sincerity. It should bring up the question for each one of us, who will be grieving at your funeral and why? Will we leave behind good works to be displayed by our dear grieving friends who miss us and who believe that our hearts were in sincere service to God while we were here? How will our deeds be interpreted? For ourselves, 
for God's glory. Something had been done by the Lord that those people believed that Tabitha's good works were indeed good works, motivated for the Lord's glory, motivated out of her gratitude for such a great deliverance, motivated out of her love for Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Commentary says a good work when there was that in them which was truly commendable and worthy of imitation and when it is done modestly and soberly and without flattery of the survivors or any sinister intention, but purely for the glory of God and the exciting of others to that which is virtuous and praiseworthy. Oh, may that be true of our souls, that we would be motivated like this. The commendation of Tabitha was like her own virtues, not in word, but in deed. Here were no encomiums of her in orations, nor poems inscribed to her memory, but the widows showed the coats and garments which she made for them and bestowed upon them while she was with them. So Peter sees all this. He looks around. He makes a decision. Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. I want us to see here what Peter does. When he prays, what is he doing? He's seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. He's kneeling down, acknowledging his submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's praying. He's looking to the only source of hope for this dead woman to be raised up. He's looking for the only source of comfort for himself and these disciples. And before he calls for her to arise, before he calls out to Tabitha, he calls out to Jesus. And then after praying, we have to believe that somehow... Peter believed that the Lord would have him call out for Tabitha to arise. We don't know for sure what he had come to believe. Was he convinced that she would definitely be raised up from the dead? Was he just convinced that God had commanded him to speak those words? We don't know. Peter looks to Christ for guidance and for power. And he's aiming for the glory of Christ. And that's what the outcome is. God had done something in Peter to help him get out of the way. John said, John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. Peter had learned about this. Commentary says he gets down on his knees expressing his submission to God. Peter doesn't want to be the one who's seen here. Yes, he's an apostle. Yes, there are special apostolic gifts and powers and authority that are given to him in that office, but he knows that he is no more worthy of that office than any other sinner who was ever born. It's as much a work of God's grace that, it's, that he's an apostle, that he's a Christian. It's all of God's grace. He wants to get out of the way. We should learn from this. We should learn from this. And he gives a simple command. He doesn't slap her. He doesn't shake her. He doesn't scream. There's no show. This is done in private. Simple. There are no need for exaggerated emotional pleas. Tabitha's dead. There's nothing she can do. She doesn't need to be persuaded of anything. <laughs> She's just dead. Faith speaks calmly and confidently, brothers and sisters. Without show, without exaggeration, without unnecessary emotion, Peter just turns to her body, speaks towards her body, and says, Tabitha, arise. Now, the pronouncement of a command to Tabitha indicates that Peter prayed for God's power to bring the dead woman back to life. 
He's trusting in God's power when he says this. And presumably for the assurance that this would happen right at this moment, allowing him to speak the command. So it's likely that he believes that she's about to be raised up when he says these words. But maybe not. Tabitha comes back from the dead. He looks at Peter. She looks at Peter and she sits up. Now there's no question she was dead and that she's now alive. She wasn't faking it. It wasn't a hypnotic episode. She opened her eyes. She could see. She saw Peter. She sat up. She was dead. She's now alive. It's not in your notes, but I think it's worth noting Peter did not freak out. You know what I mean. Jumping and hollering and screaming and opening the door. You guys aren't going to believe what just happened. Faith doesn't act that way. Faith is not astonished when Jesus acts like Jesus. Now, I'm sure he was very happy and rejoicing because he knew that by no means was Jesus obliged to heal her. So he's very grateful and very thankful, but not surprised as if Jesus is somehow unwilling or unable to raise the dead. He doesn't appear to be surprised. The miracle which happened instantly is described with three, three verbs. Tabitha opened her eyes. She looked at Peter so she could see. And he's the only person in the room kneeling beside the bed or the mattress in which she had been placed. And so then she sat up, probably as a result of seeing a man in the room. It's quite a moment for her. Now, you know that she had been conscious and aware Prior to this, her soul was still conscious and aware. Her soul didn't die. Her soul was still in existence. So she's brought back into her body, and she rises up. She would have been the one surprised. (laughs) She's back, and she has a story to tell. He gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Now, (laughs) this is so beautiful, isn't it? It's like typical scriptural understatement. Let there be light. And there was light. (laughs) Like her life before her death, the actions are speaking more than words. No words are mentioned here other than Peter calling the saints and the widows together. He got them together and he said, here's Tabitha. What a glorious understatement. He called the saints and widows who were all in sorrow for her death and presented her alive to them to their great comfort, particularly of the widows who laid her death much to heart. To them he presented her as Elijah and Elisha and Christ, presented the dead sons alive to their mothers. The greatest joy and satisfaction are expressed by life from the dead. You know, that's us, brothers and sisters. You think of that moment when the widow of Zarephath received her son back from Elijah, or the Shunammite woman received her son back from Elisha, or Christ brings back the dead son of the widow of Nain, or the dead daughter of Jairus. Think of that moment. Ponder that joy. That's the gift that flows to us from heaven by faith. We can live in that moment day by day, in the sure knowledge that to live is Christ and to die is gain and that our Savior owns us, body and soul, in life and in death, and that all that threatens us has been defeated. Well, what happens here? Well, people hear and revival occurs. It became known throughout all Joppa and many believed on the Lord. So the news of Tabitha's death and resurrection spread through the entire town of Joppa. And because of this miracle, many new believers are brought into the church there. Remember what we said last week. The Lord saves without miracles all the time in terms of physical types of manifestations like this. Of course, everybody being saved is a miracle. Every new life is a miracle from heaven. Every new conversion. God doesn't need to show miracles to people for them to be born again. Similarly, 
There are often miracles and people do not believe in spite of the miracles right in front of their face. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and the Jews knew it. All they tried to do was hide it. But in this case, the Lord chooses to combine this miracle with the going out of the gospel and to demonstrate to the people who Jesus Christ is, the one they're believing on and what he does and what his power is like. Many were by it convinced of the truth of the gospel, that it was from heaven and that it was not of men, and believed in the Lord. The thing was known throughout all Joppa. It would have been in everybody's mouth quickly, and it being a town of seafaring men, the notice of it would be the sooner carried thence to other countries, and though some never minded it, many were wrought upon by it. This was the design of miracles, to confirm a divine revelation. I also want us to note here what the text says. Many believed on the Lord. They did not believe on Peter. The man who was so instrumental, seemingly so important for this miracle, the man who was an apostle, one of very few in that office. But they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. The maxim here is that right preaching protects the church from misguided faith. We must all place our faith in Christ and direct our eyes upon him. So something else happens here is that Peter stays on in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. The text says, so it was, so it was, so as a result of what's happened, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. So as a result of the growth of the church at Joppa, this great miracle and the subsequent outpouring of the Spirit and the growth of the church there, Peter stays what we're told many days, many days, surely participating in the ongoing evangelism, new converts, and the discipleship needed to grow and establish these new converts. The discipleship needed to help the current church deal with such rapid church growth. Peter was there to help them. He was hereby induced to continue some time in the city finding that a door of opportunity was opened for him there. He tarried there many days till he was sent thence and sent forth thence upon business to another place. And we're going to see Cornelius is going to also send a couple of people to go get him in the next text. And, you know, where you want to be, right? You want to be where God calls you to be. Where do you want to be? You want to be where God is working and that he brings you there to be a part of what he's doing. That's where you want to be. And it's beautiful because he has prepared good works in advance for us to do. And that's every one of his elect. So all of you who can hear this sermon today, he has prepared good works in advance for you to do. You may not know where they are. You may not know who they're going to be with. You may not know what's going to happen. That's okay. Be ready for it. Expect it. Look for it. Wait for it. Pray for it. Peter went out with the mission. We're told he had gone throughout all that region, right? Judea, Galilee, Samaria. He'd been going out preaching. He'd been going out obeying Christ's commission, but he didn't know the details of where he was going to be. God showed him. He'll show you too. Whenever we're called to minister, wherever we're called to minister, as long as our hearts are focusing on obeying him, and doing his will, we can trust that he's going to lead us into those encounters, into those opportunities, and that he's going to provide for us. Peter didn't, it appears, know Simon the Tanner. He, he had a place to stay, though, for many days. Sounds like he had some food, too. And whatever else he needed while he was there. And so that brings to us another really important principle for us to rejoice in. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Jesus said. And all these things shall be added to you. So it's another beautiful story of God's work. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ. To show us how he's continually delivering from heaven what his people need. He heals his church. But this that he does in the life of Aeneas in Lydda. Or in the life of Tabitha at Joppa. Is just an example of his ongoing divine work in the lives of his believers, his elect, and their communities since then and up until this day.
So some questions. Are you growing up in the Lord? Are you, particularly young people, particularly young people, and old people too, are you growing up in the Lord? Maybe a good question for you to ask your mom or your dad or your siblings would be, what is the trajectory of my life? Do you see me living a life like Tabitha, overflowing more and more from faith, more and more from gratitude? Do you see that in my life? Really, the question is, what's going on inside of you? I think we can see what was going on inside of Tabitha. What's going on inside of you? Who are you? What do you love? If you drop dead, what would people say about you? Would you have the same kind of description in your life? I think we can say as Christians that we should expect to see that. That's not the unusual occurrence. That's the norm for people who are born again from above and who are filled with his spirit. We should expect this. If we're Christians, we're experiencing the life of the seed that fell on good soil. And that springs up and bears fruit and bears fruit and bears fruit. Are we perfect? Of course not. In this life, the fruit that we bear will often be half eaten by worms. <laughs> but we can still bear fruit in our lives. Are you bearing this kind of fruit? So Tabitha's life, she's known for this glad, humble, productive Grateful service to Jesus that really puts the focus on Christ. May that be true for each one of us. Amen. More and more each day. And so Tabitha's life comes to us like a mirror and says, hey, how's your life? Next. Are you able to look beyond tragedy? Are you able to look beyond tragedy to Christ's love and power? like the disciples in Joppa. Oh, this valley of Baca is hard, y'all. It's easy to talk about death and loss, but when you go through it, oh, the storm billows roll, and we feel like we may go under. But faith, draws us to Christ. Faith draws us to who he is so that we can know the comfort that he administers, that he supplies from heaven moment by moment, day by day. We can know, we can know our only comfort in life and death. That I, with body and soul, am not my own, both in life and death belonging to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is where we can find comfort, like they did. They looked to Jesus, and <clears throat> it appears as though they were filled with hope. They were mourning, they were grieving, but it doesn't mean they were despairing. They were mourning, they were grieving, but it doesn't mean they were despairing. Do you tend to lean towards despair? I do. Do you tend to do the moaning and groaning on the inside and throw your hands up and say, oh, what's the point? I'm done with this. Do the turtle, sir, come inside yourself, involute. Who cares what other people do? Nobody loves me. I guess I'll go eat dirt. Faith is the only thing that can draw us out of that little black hole we take ourselves into. <clears throat> be like the community at Joppa. Be like Tabitha. And be like those grieving widows who were not despairing. Next. Do you understand what is death? <clears throat> you know, death was not a part of the initial design of this cosmos. Death was a result of sin. God told them, right, if you sin, you will die, right? 
Now, he was gracious to them. He didn't immediately separate their bodies from their souls and leave their dirt bodies back down on the dirt that he had made Adam from or Eve's body falling down next to the body she'd been made from. He didn't do that to them. He allowed their bodies and their souls to remain together. So this is what death is. It's when our soul is parted from our body. And you may think, why are you drilling in on this? Because it's really important to see what God made and what was lost and what's going to be restored in the final day because there are a lot of deceptions out there that will try to tell you that your body is not important. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So when you are resurrected in your final glorified body, you're not going to lose anything that's a part of this body except for sickness and death. That's it. This body, to smell, to see, to taste, to speak, to sing, to touch, to love, to dance, it's all still going to be here. To hug, it's all still going to be here. To eat, to drink. It's all still going to be here to live as Christ, to die as gain. But the spiritual bodies we're going to get are going to be even more. Jesus flew up into heaven in his glorified body. Jesus passed through walls in his glorified body. Jesus appeared in his glorified body. We're going to have, we're told, as he is resurrected, we shall be as well. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And when we are reunited on that great final day with our bodies, it is going to be better than what was lost in Eden. And we'll be eating of everything we see. Enjoying everything without worry. But we know when the soul came back to the son of the widow of Zarephath or Jairus' daughter when their spirit returned to her, you know, they went on to die again. Right? So they didn't go, they weren't brought back into glorified bodies. So that's just a foreshadowing of the glorified bodies that we're going to have. And a foreshadowing of God's power to put our souls and bodies back together on that final day. The invisible eternal soul can be parted from our bodies. And when this happens, these bodies die. Jesus has a plan to give us a body unlike a body we could ever imagine and to unite our souls with it. And they will never be parted again. Nor will there ever be the threat of them being parted again. So it's worth thinking about what's going to happen for us on that great day of resurrection. It's worth rejoicing in what is coming our way in that great day of resurrection. Our souls, the invisible part of who we are, the eternal spirit, will be brought back together with this perfect spiritual body with no sin, never to be parted again. Never to be parted from one another again. Praise be to God and sisters for what Jesus Christ has provided for us. And as we consider who he is and what he has done for us, and as our faith grows and we look to him more and more, we do receive from him, from heaven, what we need to be comforted in this valley of Baca. Next. We want others to know this joy, don't we? What horrible misery to live a life and not have this comfort. What horrible misery to live a life and think that at the end, you don't know what's going to happen. What horrible misery to go through the pain and suffering of this life with no answers, with no purpose, and with no real comfort. We should groan for the lost. And so, when we ponder the evangelistic and the discipleship outcomes of the power of God poured out in Lydda and Joppa 
we should crave the same thing in our lives. That we would be receiving the same kind of resurrection power at work in us and through us. That we would have the same kind of ongoing living joy that we know must have been present there in Lydda and in Joppa. And it is ours, brothers and sisters. This is no pipe dream. This is reality. We have been delivered from all the power of the devil. And our Lord preserves us. And none can separate us from him. And death has been defeated by our God. May the Lord bless us to hear his word, to believe these things, and to receive from heaven the comfort that we need and grow up more and more in living these lives of gratitude, learning how to express our gratitude more and more to God, like Tabitha, like many others. And may we participate in this as God does this in demonstrating the glory of Christ to the people around us, to the world around us. And may God bless us to participate in this kind of revival. In Jesus' name, yes, for his glory, let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we cry out to you, Lord, with the same heart of Elijah and Elisha, with the same heart of Peter, looking to you, Lord Jesus Christ, to bring forth your power upon us, in us, and through us, that we may know your healing touch, that we may know your comfort, that we may know the joys of Mount Zion, the indescribable and endless tastes that are ours day by day of the infinite bliss that is heaven. Grant to us even now, we pray, O God, that the aroma of heaven would fill our souls and that we would be filled up with gladness as we Continue to move forward in worshiping you this day. Oh, we look to you, Lord Jesus. And we ask you to move in the same might and power as raising the dead. For our good to know you, to love you, to be sanctified. To be like Tabitha. To be like this community of faith at Joppa. That we might participate in knowing you and loving you more and more. And seeing you, participating with you in the conversion of many lost souls, and the growth of Your church here and throughout our region and throughout this world, O oh God, we pray for Your glory, for the name of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.